name is Josh. I'm the minister here at Alliance Christian Church. We're going to jump into our series called Kingdoms today. But before we do that, I would love if you would go with me to God in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we get to study your word, to understand what it means for our life. God, I just ask that you would be with us, each and every one of us, as we study your word and the truth behind it. God, I ask that you would be with me, that you would make my words clear and concise so that your word would be faithfully taught. We pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. And the church said, amen. all right, amen. So we're in our kingdom series. We're on the home stretch. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 24 and 25 today. And this is the last of the five big speeches in Matthew. The final one. We've been talking about all these speeches. So we had the, the Sermon on the Mount. These were the values of Christ's kingdom. We had the mission speech in Matthew 10. This was the commitment required to grow God's kingdom. We had the parables in chapter 13 explaining why some people are in the kingdom and why some people aren't. We had Matthew 18, which was some kind called the church life speech, church life discourse, which is what the kingdom should look like after the resurrection of the king, after the kingdom is handed over to the church. And this last one in chapters 24 and 25 is on the Mount of Olives. Some people, like a lot of scholars and smart people, they call it the Olivet Discourse because it's on the Mount of Olives. I'm not a big fan of when fancy Bible people make fancy Bible names. It gets confusing. So we're going to call this the end of the world speech. If you have a better name, let me know. <laughs> because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what Jesus says about the end of time. So if you have your Bible, I would love if you would open up with me to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 1. Matthew 24, verse 1. It says, Now as Jesus was going out of the temple courts and walking away, his disciples came to show him the temple buildings. And he said to them, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus and his disciples are walking around Jerusalem. They're looking at the temple of all the big fancy buildings. And Jesus says, that temple, see that temple right there? It's going to get destroyed. It's going to get torn down. And his disciples, the disciples come to him and they got two questions. Number one, when? When is this going to happen? And number two, when are you going to come back after the resurrection? What is going to be the sign of the end of the age? So as we work through the text, those are the two questions that the disciples have asked Jesus to answer. So we get into verse 4. It says, Jesus answered them, Watch out that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Make sure you are not alarmed, for this must happen, but the end is still to come. All right, so, so far in these two verses, Jesus has not answered the question. He's told them there's going to be these false messiahs, there's going to be wars, there's going to be earthquakes and all this other stuff, but this is not the end. The end is still to come. Okay, so let's keep reading. Let's get into verse 7. Verse 7 says, 
For nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so again, not answering the question. These are just the beginning of birth pains. Going into labor, it's getting closer. But when you're going into labor, it doesn't mean the baby's here yet. How long was Emily in labor for? Thirty-six hours. My wife, that's, 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 that's good. My wife was like, uh, I think it was 28 with, with Theodore. So you know that when labor sets on, it doesn't mean that the baby's here yet. So those are two different things. So again, as we're reading through, there, he's, Jesus is answering the question by not answering the question. We get into verse 9. Verse 9 says, Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and will kill you. You will be hated by all the nations because of my name. Then many will be led to sin, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. But the person who endures to the end will be saved. So three times in a row, Jesus has not answered the question, what is going to be the sign of my coming? You notice that if you read the text carefully? He says, this is all going to be something you're going to have to endure through. Which the very word endure implies. It's not over yet. You're going to have to endure through it. And then in verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole inhabited earth as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the, the Greek word there, then, is kind of a vague, it just means after. Right? So in the Bible, you, you, you'll see the word then, or you'll see the word immediately. And when you see the word then, it's, it's a very vague, it basically just means like sometime after all of that stuff. So really, Jesus, in true Jesus style, the disciples have asked him a very simple question. When is the end of the world going to be? And Jesus tells them a whole bunch of stuff that's going to happen that's not the end of the world. And says so it's going to be after all that stuff. They're like, what's the sign of the second coming? And Jesus is like, well, there's going to be wars, and there's going to be earthquakes, and famines, and false messiahs. You guys are going to get persecuted, and the gospel is going to be preached throughout the world. And the disciples are like, is that the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus is like, nope, that's just stuff that's going to happen. End of the world's going to be after all that stuff. Thanks, Jesus. That's really not the question the disciples were asking, is it? And as we get into verse 15, remember, the disciples had asked two questions. The first one was, when is the end of the world going to be? When is your coming going to be? When's the end of the age? And the second one is, when will all these things happen? When will the temple be destroyed? Remember that as we, as we jump into verse 15. Verse 15 says, So, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken about by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
So at this point in our study, I want to introduce you all to the most valuable Bible reading tool that you will ever use in your entire life. We always talk about those Bible reading tools you keep in your back pocket. I don't want this one in your back pocket. This one I want you to hold with you all the time. I want you to staple it to your forehead. And it's about these four words. Let the reader understand. Notice that that's not something Jesus said. That's something that Matthew wrote. You understand? So when when Jesus wants you to pay attention to something and he's talking, what does he say? He, He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. Let the reader understand. Well, Jesus isn't talking to readers. He's talking to listeners. These four words, let the reader understand, is something that Matthew thought was so important that as he was writing his gospel, he stopped and interrupted Jesus and was like, my readers are really going to have to know this. And he wrote, let the reader understand. He breaks the fourth wall with this one little remark. And here's the Bible reading tool I want you to carry with you everywhere you go. He's not talking about you. He's not talking about me. See, Matthew wrote his account of the gospel at a very specific time and a very specific place in history with a very specific audience he was writing to, and it was not us in Alliance, Nebraska in the year 2023. He puts this little signal in here, let the reader understand, as a signal to the reader to stop and think about what Jesus just said and look around at the world and to understand that Jesus predicted that very thing. It's Matthew's way of saying, hey, remember that thing that happened last Tuesday? Jesus predicted this. You should really pay attention because this is important. And I, I cannot stress this enough. When we read any part of Scripture, the Bible was not written directly to us. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. Why, why is that important? When we start to think that the Bible was written directly to us, what happens is we start reading the Bible and then looking at the news and scrolling on Facebook, and we're acting like we cracked the code. We've connected all the dots. And it's just not a healthy way to read the Bible. When we think that the Bible was written to us, we end up taking our lives, our culture, our historical context, what we see on Facebook, what we see on the news, and we try to slap it back onto God's Word to try to make it fit. Whereas what we should be doing is the exact opposite. We should be taking the culture and history of the Bible and the people who lived when the Bible was written and the people who lived when Matthew was writing and trying to apply that to our lives, not the other way around. So this, this abomination of desolation thing, this isn't something Jesus made up. He's quoting scripture here. He's quoting from the book of Daniel. Okay, so now we have another level of culture and context. We can't just look at Matthew's culture and context. Now we have to go back to Daniel's culture and context to understand what he's talking about. So if you go to Daniel chapter 9, the prophet Daniel is is in captivity in Babylon, 
And in Daniel 9, he's praying for the forgiveness of sins for the nation of Israel. Because they're in captivity, they're being punished. And Daniel is praying for God to forgive their sins. And the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, don't worry. Throughout chapter 9, he says, there's going to be an anointed one who's going to come. He's going to end sin. He's going to bring about this everlasting righteousness. He says this anointed one is going to be cut off and killed. He's going to confirm a covenant with the people. Sound familiar? And then in verse 27, it says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. That's a, that's a, a symbolic number, seven years. It's most likely a, a term of completion. But anyways, he says, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering in the temple. At the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So this idea of the abomination of desolation from Daniel's context, from Jesus' context, was this idea that there was going to be something at the temple that was set up that was a disgrace against God. Fast forward a couple hundred years from Daniel's culture and history. About 200 years before Christ, we had the Greeks in charge of Judea. This is a Jewish history book writing about this period. It says, not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator, a Greek senator, to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer live by the laws of God, and also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and call it the temple of the Olympian Zeus. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the law. So this, this idea of the abomination of desolation was, was that some king was going to come into the temple and he was going to desecrate the temple. And so about 200 years before Jesus, all of these Jewish historians were like, I think that's the thing Daniel was talking about. That's what a first century Jew would have thought about this idea of the abomination of desolation. That's what Matthew's readers, that's what the disciples had in their mind. Now let's fast forward to another historian who was writing almost exactly the same time Matthew was writing. A historical event that happened. This is the Romans now. This historian writes, Now, Gaius Caesar did so grossly abuse the fortune he had arrived at as to take himself to be a god. All right, so the Roman emperor said, I think I'm a god, and to desire to be called so. He also extended his impiety as far as the Jews. Accordingly, he sent Petronius, that's one of his generals, with an army to Jerusalem to place his statues in the temple and commanded him that in case the Jews would not admit of them, he should slay those that opposed it and carry the rest of the nation into captivity. You seeing what's going on here? Jesus says, let the reader understand there's going to be this abomination of desolation. And Matthew's like, that's important. Let the reader understand. We look into history, and the Roman emperor puts out a decree that I'm going to put statues of myself in the Jewish temple to be worshipped. And then not long after that, the Roman army surrounded Jerusalem and burned the city to the ground and destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. That's what Jesus predicted. And rather 
amazingly. Well, when you're the son of God, you can predict things pretty well. Because this is what, this is what Jesus says about the destruction of the temple. Read verse 17 in Matthew, not Daniel. Verse 17 says, The one on the roof must not come down to take anything out of his house, and the one in the field must not return back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great suffering unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the world until now or will ever happen. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short." Then, and this is important, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Remember, I've told you ahead of time. So then if anyone says to you, look, he's out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe him. For just like lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so the Son of Man will be. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Notice this. Jesus predicts this destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and he still says, don't go out looking for the Messiah during that time either because he's not going to be there. There are going to be false messiahs proclaiming to be me. It's not going to be me. Jesus says, when I show up, It's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. So, so far, the disciples have asked Jesus this question. When are you coming back? And we're 28 verses in, and Jesus has yet to answer that question. He keeps saying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and then tells his disciples, that's not the end, that's not the end, there's going to be false messiahs, it's not going to be me. The temple is going to be destroyed. destroyed. There's going to be more false messiahs. Still not going to be me. And it's not until verse 29 until he actually gives them the answer to their question. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He says, learn this parable from the fig tree. Whenever its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also you, when you see all these things, know that he is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There's two words in in that passage that are maybe a little bit difficult to try and understand. It's the word these and the word those. So the first one is the very beginning. It says, immediately after the suffering of those days, and then he describes his coming. Well, what are those days? What are the days that he's talking about? 
Given the fact that everything Jesus has predicted up until this point was happening in the first century and the second century and the third all the way up until the 21st century, we're living in a time where there's earthquakes and wars and false prophets and false messiahs and the temple has been destroyed. All of that stuff's been happening since the day that Jesus ascended. So when Jesus said immediately after those days, he means these days. But when is that? Well, whenever these days are over. It's still not really answering the question, isn't it? Sometime after these days. And the other one that really gives us trouble is is at the end of that passage when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away before all of these things happen. What is this generation? There's really only two options with the word this. He's describing a generation. Option one is, well, actually there's three options, isn't there? Option one is this generation, meaning he's talking to the disciples. This generation will not pass away. Well, we can kind of strike that one off the list, can't we? Because they're not here, are they? The second one is this generation, meaning us, who's reading the text now. Well, we just talked about how we are not the primary audience, and for us to think that we happen to be the ones, well, we, can't, we can strike that off the list either. So the only one left is that this generation is the generation that's around when Jesus comes back. So to summarize everything we've learned, from what Jesus has said, number one, the temple is going to be destroyed. Check. Number two, there's going to be bad stuff in the world. Check. And number three, someday Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, it's going to be quick and sudden. And you're not going to have time to really know what's going on. He's going to come back and it's going to be done. The sign of Jesus' second coming ultimately is going to be Jesus' second coming. And we're not going to know. It's just going to happen. And we're not going to be able to predict it. And I think that's on purpose. I don't think we're supposed to be able to predict it. Because frankly, Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back. So what makes us think we're going to predict it? We get into verse 36. Jesus says, But as for that day and hour, no one knows it. Not even the angels in heaven except the Father alone. For just like the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and took them all away. It will be the same at the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one left. There will be two women grinding grain with the meal, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay alert, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been alert and would not have let the house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. If you ask 
10 different Christians about what their theory of the end of the world is, you'll get 20 different answers. There's the pre-millennials and the post-millennials and the anti-millennials and all this stuff. There's going to be this thing and this rain. And, and if, we, if we are a Bible-based church and we want a Bible-based idea about the end of the world, the biblical view of the end time is, is, is Jesus is going to come back someday when he's good and ready. That's it. And it's going to be quick and unexpected, and by the time we see the signs, it's not going to be all over anyway. Because if we look at Jesus' teachings, Jesus doesn't want us to be like the disciples and to be occupied with trying to figure out when he's coming back. Look at verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 45. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom the master has put in charge of his household? to give the other slaves their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom the master finds at work when he comes. I tell you the truth, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave should say to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and to eat and drink with drunkards, then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not foresee and will cut him in two and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this parable, there's a servant, there's a slave in charge of the master's household, and he's trying to guess when the master's coming back. And his conclusion is, it's going to be a long time. Whenever Jesus is coming back, it's going to be a long time. It's not going to be in my lifetime. Why should I worry about it? And it doesn't win well for him. If we operate on the, under the assumption that he's not going to come back for a long time, we get lazy and complacent. And we think to ourselves, why should I bother sharing the love of Christ with somebody? There's always tomorrow. There's always going to be someone else. We've got time. You don't know that. But then if we look at the next parable, this is in 25. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of the virgins were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish ones took their lamps, they did not take extra olive oil with them. But the wise ones took flasks of olive oil with their lamps. When the bridegroom was delayed a long time, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, the bridegroom is here. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there won't be enough for you and for us. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they had gone to buy it, the bridegroom arrived, and those who were ready went inside with him to the wedding banquet. Then the door was shut. Later the other virgins came too, saying, Lord, Lord, let us in. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore stay alert, because you do not know the day or the hour. So at weddings it was traditional for a group of women, usually virgins, to stand outside of the wedding hall with lamps so that the, when, when the wedding was over, they could light the way to the reception, the banquet hall, right? You go from the wedding to the reception, and they're waiting with lamps. These women had the opposite problem of the slave in the household. They didn't bring enough oil because they were convinced he was going to come, like the, the wedding was going to be over like now. 
They're like, I'm not going to bother bringing extra oil. This wedding's going to be wrapped up in like 15 minutes. We're going to go to the banquet easy peasy. But it took longer than they expected, and they ran out of oil. That's the opposite side of the spectrum. Because let's be honest with ourselves. If we knew for a fact that Jesus was coming back, like today, like right after church, he was going to come in on the clouds, and that was it. Let's be honest with our hearts. We're not going to be out there trying to save people. I'd like to think that we would, but I don't think we honestly would. I think that if we knew he was coming back today, we would operate under the mindset of like, well, he's going to be here in like 30 minutes, so I've done everything I can do. I'm just going to sit back and wait. In both instances, the man who thought the master was going to be a long time and the women who thought the banquet was going to be over like right now, they got complacent. That's why we're not supposed to guess when he's coming back. That's why we're not supposed to know when he's coming back. It could be halfway through my sermon or it could be a thousand years from now or anywhere in between, and our job is not to guess. Our job is to continue being faithful servants of the kingdom, faithful stewards of the kingdom. Because God has given us a gift of salvation, and our job is to do something with it. That's what our next parable in uh, verse 14 is about. He says, For it is like a man going on a journey who summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The one who had received five talents, that's a unit of money, by the way. The one who had received five talents went off right away and put his money to work and gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two gained two more, but the one who had one talent went out and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money in it. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled his accounts with them. The one who had received five talents came and brought five more, saying, Sir, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master answered, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one with two talents also came and said, Sir, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master answered, Well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received one talent came and said, Sir, sir, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered, Evil and lazy slave. So you knew that I harvest where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't scatter? Then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten, for the one who has will be given more, and he will have more than enough. But the one who does not have, even what he has will not be taken from him. And throw that worthless slave into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a hard passage. But this passage is not about how we handle our money. It's not about our spiritual gifts. I've heard it talked about in those ways. If we read this passage in its context, with the verses around it, Jesus is talking about the end of the age. 
and he's talking about what we do with our salvation, with the gift God has given us. We grow it. We share it with people. We invite other people into the kingdom. Because if we think that we can just sit back and enjoy God's grace because, hey, I've been saved. I've got my reward. I'm going to heaven. I don't care about y'all. I know where I'm going. I think we've got another thing coming. I think that's a problem. Um, as a quick aside note, will you text or somebody text Stu and or Richard and let them know that they can come up from Children's Church here pretty soon? God has given us this gift, and while we are here, until he comes back, he expects us to do something with it. We get into verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before him, and he will separate people one from another like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not receive me as a guest. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not give you whatever you needed? It says, then he will answer them, I tell you the truth, just as you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And these will depart into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So as we've been reading through the book of Matthew, there's this big theme, this big idea that Matthew has been telling us about Jesus, that the first will be last. Jesus says over and over, the first will be last. If you want to become great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be a disciple, you've got to take up your cross and die with him. If you want to be first, you have to become last. We... We want to know, when is Jesus coming back? What's the sign going to be? When am I going to receive eternal glory in heaven? When am I going to be with Jesus? And Jesus is like, look, I'm going to come back. It's going to be bad for a while, and then it's going to be good. I'm going to take care of you, so stop worrying about it. Stop worrying about when I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back when I'm good and ready, 
Now get back to work. If you love Jesus, if he is the Lord of your life, you're going to be taken care of in the end. And if you love God, you're going to take care of his children. You're going to feed them. You're going to serve them. You're going to visit them when they're sick. And you're going to teach them about the love that God has for them. Let the reader understand. This is something, this is a concept that was true for the disciples in their cultural context. It's been true for 2,000 years of Christian history and it's true today. Let the reader understand. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me, Jesus says. And that's what we should occupy ourselves on. Not the signs, not the connecting the dots. How can we love God's children? Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for your word. God, sometimes it frustrates us because we want to know all the things. We want to know all the signs. We want to connect all the dots. And God, I just ask that you would give us the humility to come before your throne and just say, I trust you. I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know how exactly it's going to look. But I know that you're going to come back. You're going to redeem us all. You're going to make things right. And you're going to take us to a place where there is no death, there is no pain. And that we will get to be with you. God, I ask that you would just help us. Help us to stay busy. Help us to stay alert. Because we don't know if you'll be back today or a thousand years from now or anywhere in between. So just give us the strength that we need to get that out of our mind and just get back to work being stewards of your kingdom. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said...